Can you complete the Christmas carol? What's the next word in the Christmas carol? Born by people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. You can, you can talk back to me. It's all right. And by, next, next carol. And by the light of that same star, the wise men came from country far to seek for a king. O morning stars together, proclaim the holy birth. And praises sing to God the King. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Hark the herald. Angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Last one. Shepherds hear the angels sing. Alleluia to our King. We could keep going. Uh, But I trust at this point you are picking up what I'm putting down. Christmas carol, after Christmas carol, proclaims the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I said that we could keep going, we we really could, uh, to compile that list, I just opened our hymnals uh, and, and perused the first 15 carols or so. Why does Christmas carol after Christmas carol proclaim the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that is who He is. Jesus is King. The, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was the beginning of the end of the terrible reign of sin and Satan and death. And this is good news. It's truth. It's truth that we ought to rejoice in, that Jesus is the messianic king of the whole earth. And it's what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's word. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bible, to open your Bible to Acts chapter 17. We're looking at verses 1 to 15 together this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, I believe you can find the passage on page 926. We're in the middle of our study of the book of Acts. Uh, This book, it chronicles the ongoing ministry of King Jesus as he's risen and reigning from his throne in heaven. And he is carrying out his work through his disciples by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the goal of this book is to see the message of salvation about King Jesus proclaimed and carried to the ends of the earth. In the very first chapter of the book of Acts, Jesus let us know how this ministry was going to be carried out. He was going to cause his disciples to be his witnesses from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We've made our way in the book of Acts into that fourth phase of Jesus' program. We're seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. It's gone from Jerusalem and Judea and through Samaria, and now it's going to the ends of the earth. We've looked at Paul's first missionary journey. That was chapters 13 and 14. And now we're in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey here in chapter 17. And in this missionary journey, one of the things that Luke is underscoring for us is that Jesus saves all kinds of people. And here we see that Paul is being driven to a a different part of the earth than he was thinking about going to. You remember from our study last week from Acts chapter 16, Paul was given a vision of a man from Macedonia. And he was prohibited from going into various regions. And this man from Macedonia said, come on over and help us. And so Paul was driven into a different uh, mission field than he was expecting. But the Lord has clearly led led him there, him and his companions. They've preached in Philippi. And today, we see Paul come to two different cities, two new cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And here we see that Paul and his companions, though they were shamefully treated in Philippi, they're actually going to be shamefully treated in Thessalonica and Berea as well. Nevertheless, what they're going to do 
is they're going to proclaim that Jesus, he is the messianic king and that he must be proclaimed in all the world. So if you're looking for the the main idea of our passage this morning, that's it. That Jesus, he is the messianic king and he must be proclaimed in all the world. And And we might even add that Jesus must be proclaimed despite rejection and persecution. Let's read the passage now. Let me encourage you to take up your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. And follow along as I read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. And in fact, in honor of the passage that we read earlier in the service, Nehemiah chapter 8, where the people of God stood for the reading of God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word as I read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. Go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, the the main idea of this text is that Jesus, the Messianic King, must be proclaimed in all the world. And I want to show you that from the text itself. You might have um, an outline provided in your bulletin. Feel free to make use of that throughout the course of the sermon. But, but I want to show you that the point of this text is that Jesus, the Messianic King, must be proclaimed in all the world. Do you see verse 3 there? Do you see how Paul explicitly says that Jesus is the Christ? That phrase, the Christ, is, is really a reference to the Old Testament. The Old Testament promises concerning the Anointed One, the Messiah, were references to the Christ. And you see that Paul is clearly saying that Jesus is this Christ. Not only that, but the Jews and the crowd, they understood the implications of this proclamation by Paul. You see it in their response there in verse 7. You see it there? They clearly heard that 
Paul was proclaiming that Jesus is a king. And that's because the Old Testament teaching concerning the Christ was that he would be a king, that he would sit on the throne of David. And so these 15 verses, they communicate to us that this proclamation of Jesus, it must take place in all the world. His kingship must be proclaimed in all the world. And it's proclaimed, we see, not, not only by Paul in these cities, city to city, from Philippi to Thessalonica but to Berea, but as the crowd intensifies, you see, and testifies to there in verse 6, Paul and his companions, they have turned the world upside down. This message is it's spreading all over the world. And as we've seen in the book of Acts, it's continuing to emanate out from Jerusalem. And by the end of the passage, the message that Jesus is the Messianic king is poised yet to break into another city, into Athens. The message keeps moving on as Jesus is proclaimed in all the world, even despite rejection and persecution. But, but what does this have to do with us? Let's deal with some application right up front. How can this passage help us as Christians? This passage has everything to do with us. Because if you are a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've been called and commissioned by Jesus to go and make Him known. To go and make His kingship known in all the world. This passage, it will help you do just that. It will help you proclaim Jesus. It's going to present five parallels in Paul's ministry in these two cities that can help us proclaim Jesus as the Messianic King in all the world. But what if you're here today and you're, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? What if you're not a Christian? How does this passage help you? Well, this passage, it, it helps you understand that the Old Testament Scriptures anticipated the coming of Jesus as King. This passage helps you understand that because Jesus is King, you ought to surrender your whole life to Him. Let's take a closer look at this passage now through these five parallels that we see in Paul's ministry in both of these cities. Here's, here's the first parallel. Paul has a plan for this ministry of making Jesus, the Messianic King, known in all the world. He has a plan for ministry in Thessalonica and a plan for ministry in Berea. And his plan, it always begins with a synagogue. That's where the scriptures were studied. So set your eyes on Acts chapter 17, verses 1 and 2 again. Read those verses. Do you see them? Now when they had passed through, this is Paul and his companions, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Do you see what Luke tells us about Paul's plan and his practice? Paul turned up at a synagogue of the Jews and this, we're told, was his custom. Now skip down to verse 10 and notice Paul, he follows the same plan when he gets to Berea. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, here in, in this verse, Paul, he's actually been whisked away from Thessalonica after a mob has tried to arrest him, as we read earlier. And what does he do when he gets to Berea? Well, he does the same thing that he did in Thessalonica. He goes right back to the previous plan that just got him in trouble. He went into the Jewish synagogue. Truth be told, this, this really was Paul's custom. And it had been for a while now. Paul's been following this plan on his previous missionary journey. You can go back and read about that this afternoon in Acts chapter 13 and 14. But you'll see that Paul, he keeps going to these synagogues and preaching Jesus Christ. This was Paul's plan. It was his custom. Find a synagogue and preach Jesus. A plan is useful to a mission. It's useful to this mission. 
What's that old quip about uh, planning and failing? I think it's been credited to Winston Churchill. I'm not sure that's true. But it goes something like this. If you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. That's not absolutely true, but it's generally true. So what is our plan as a church family for making Jesus known? What's our custom, as Luke says? Well, it's to turn up here every Lord's Day and to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ preached and proclaimed. To administer the ordinances, which teach us again about Jesus and his work. It's to read the Bible, to pray the Bible, to sing the Bible. God plans to use these means in our corporate life to evangelize the lost and to equip the saints, to equip you for the work of the ministry in carrying his gospel around the world. And of course, from time to time, we'll also have kind of gospel opportunities that coincide with seasonal interests. So just like yesterday, our sisters hosted the carols and confectioners where the message of Jesus was shared through song and scripture. And we're praying that God will be pleased to use it to bear gospel fruit. And we'll go Christmas carol. We'll have a Christmas Eve service. Uh, Lord willing, uh, in, in the new year, should the Lord Jesus tarry, uh, we'll have a Good Friday service where Christ is proclaimed as, as the resurrected uh, King. Uh, well, these avenues, they, they've been our plan, they've, they've been our custom for years now. And the Lord has been pleased to work mightily through them. We have a plan for when we gather. That's what we do each Lord's Day, we gather. But what's our plan, what's your plan for when we as Christians scatter? What do you, what do you personally and individually plan to do in order to make Jesus Christ known? Do you have a plan for your personal evangelism? Where do you customarily go? Are, are, you, are there places where you can plan to evangelize? Uh, think about that. Do you, do you go to work? Is, is it your custom to go to work and to see the same people? Uh, do, do you have a custom of going to the same stores, the same gym, the same place for lunch, the same coffee shop, the same community center, uh, the same soccer field or swimming pool, the same baseball or softball field? What's your plan? Where, where are the places you go? And, and how do you take Jesus there? What's your custom? And what's your question? Have you thought about developing a good gospel entry question to engage somebody that you see there regularly about Jesus Christ? Maybe talk with another brother or sister after the service and, 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 and come up with, brainstorm about a good question. Say, hey, what's a good question to ask this acquaintance I have at, at, at the swimming pool or, or, or at the store about Jesus Christ? Try to think through the question of getting from how have you been to have you heard about Jesus? That'd be a great thing for us to think about, to have a question, a gospel question prepared to try and lead to a conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a plan. Have a purpose for the conversation. Get to proclamation. We've seen Paul's plan for mission unfold in Thessalonica and Berea. And now we should consider another parallel. Paul's proclamation of Jesus. This is where Paul puts his plan into practice. The, the proclamation of Jesus is the fruit, really, of Paul's planning. Take a look at verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 17. We read this. And when Paul went in, as was his custom... And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. It's amazing to think that from these three short weeks in Thessalonica, God the Holy Spirit was pleased to establish a church from the fruit of this proclamation. Three weeks' time, and a church is formed. 
It's amazing what God can do in such a short amount of time when we give ourselves to coming together and working together and knowing one another and talking about the scriptures. He does amazing things. And Luke, as you see here, he piles up the terms for what Paul is doing in the course of his proclamation. He, he reasons, he explains, he proves. You see that word reason there? He reasons with those in the synagogue. That, that means Paul is actually arguing with them there in the synagogue. Now, he's not arguing in kind of the sense that we normally think about it, right? the angry sense. No, what Paul is doing is he's establishing an argument. He's taking the evidence and he's laying out a case. He's showing an argument for why Jesus is the Messiah. He's based on evidence. He's methodically showing those gathered in the synagogue what the scriptures say about God's Messiah, God's Christ. But he's not just doing that. He's also explaining the scriptures. And this means that Paul, he's, he's taking them to an Old Testament text. He's, he's certainly probably giving them the context. He's explaining the language of how it works together. He's giving them the sense of what it means. That's what we read earlier in the service, right? From Nehemiah chapter 8. Those men, they went about the crowd and they explained the scriptures. They gave the sense of what, what the passage meant. And that's what Paul is doing here as he explains the scriptures. That's what we're trying to do here week in and week out. Explain what these scriptures mean. But Paul is doing something else too there. Do you see that word proving? He's proving something about God's Messiah. And the idea of proving is that it, Paul is laying things side by side. Right, so what he's doing is he's laying out these biblical texts, text after text after text. And then what he does is he lays beside those texts the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that they can see for themselves that Jesus, he fulfills these scriptures. That he is God's Messiah. That he's the one that fulfills the expectations and the anticipations of the Old Testament scriptures. Paul doesn't just show them that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise. He shows them that Jesus is that Messiah, and he shows them why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die and rise. And so we can expect that Paul went to places like Psalm 22, which predicted and pictured Jesus' sufferings on the cross. We, we can expect that Paul went to places like Psalm 16, which uh, spoke of Jesus' resurrection from the dead in the words of David. But we can also expect that Paul went to a place like Isaiah 53, which explains why it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to die and to rise. And it really is because we have sinned against God. So Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says this, tells us that the Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus had to die. It was necessary for Jesus to die in order to take away our sins. His resurrection was necessary for the fulfillment of Scripture, but also for our salvation. This is the work that Jesus had to accomplish. And you see, in, in Paul's day, this was necessary in Paul's day, and really in Jesus' day too, because the, the, the Jews and those who were gathered there, they were convinced that there would be a Messianic king. And, and, and that king, in their conception, he was a, a conquering hero. And, and as we know, Jesus, he was a conquering hero. He, he conquered sin and death. But in, in the minds of, of the Jews in that day, they, they were thinking that the Messianic king, that he would be one who would conquer Rome, conquer the armies of Rome, and relieve Israel from that form of oppression. But Jesus was very clear about his work. So in, in Mark's gospel, Jesus told his disciples, in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus said this kind of thing over and over and over again in his ministry. 
He was trying to explain to them the work of the Messiah. It was going to be suffering and death and resurrection. In fact, in the last chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus explained to his disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, the the nature of his work. So, So listen to these remarkable words from Luke 24, verses 44 to 46. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So you see, in this Thessalonian synagogue, Paul is seeking to do just what Jesus did with his disciples, explaining the necessity of his work of living, of suffering, of dying, and rising. Paul proclaims that Jesus, that he is this Messiah. Jesus is this Christ. And as one commentator pointed out, Paul's proclamation almost looks syllogistic, right? Scripture said that the Messiah would suffer and be raised from the dead. Jesus experienced this. Therefore, Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's what Paul is is doing here in this synagogue. So Paul proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah in Thessalonica, but he did it in Berea too. Skip down to verse 11 of Acts chapter 17, and you'll see Paul's proclamation at Berea. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word. That's the proclamation. Paul is preaching the word. They are receiving the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And we're told that the the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Some have thought that this spoke to their kind of socioeconomic status as as that of having nobility. I think what what Luke is truly, truly kind of clearly trying to communicate here, though, is that their nobility is seen in their reception of the word of God. Uh, They're not antagonistic like those Jews in Thessalonica were. They even took it upon themselves to examine the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And here's an important principle for, for us all. Preachers should never be believed just because they hold an authoritative position or because they speak authoritatively. Instead, you should believe because the authoritative God says it in his authoritative word. And as we consider Paul's proclamation, we need to remember that this is the heart of of mission. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ is the very heart of the mission. Unless we have told others that Jesus came and he lived a sinless life, that he died as a substitute for sinners, that he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of sins, and that sinners are called to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless we have done all of that, then we have not proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I, I want to encourage you, beloved, to practice and to play gospel bingo in every sermon here at Arlington Baptist Church. And by that, I mean that you should be listening for me or for whoever is preaching from this pulpit. You should be listening for them to proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you hear those elements proclaimed, you can say, bingo, that's the gospel. Say it out. Don't say it out loud. Say it in your head. Uh, but, but you should be listening for that. And you need to be holding me accountable, right? You need to be hearing me proclaiming that God is the holy, just, and good God who created all the world and everything in it. You need to be, hear me proclaiming man in his sinfulness and his need to be spared from God's wrath because of his sin. You need to hear me proclaim that Jesus is the gracious Savior of sinners who came being fully God and fully man, who lived a life of perfect righteousness and laid down his life on the cross so that he suffered for sinners like us. But not that, not just that, 
but he was lifted up from the grave three days later after his death. You should be hearing me say, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and place and rest your life upon him, trusting in him. When you hear that, you should be saying, bingo, that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that needs to be the heartbeat of this pulpit week in and week out. It's what gives us life and nourishes us in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure that we get to that in our proclamation of Jesus as well. We can share our testimony. We can share about what Jesus has done in our life, how he's changed us in his grace and kindness. But we need to be sharing about Jesus' work in his life, death, and resurrection. That's the heart of the gospel. So, so make sure that in your planning and in your proclamation, you actually get to sharing about what Jesus has done in his life in ministry and being raised from the grave. And it's useful to our non-Christian friends as well to share them, share with them why it was necessary. Why was all of this necessary? And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to understand why it was necessary for Jesus to live, to love, to lay down his life, and to be lifted up from the grave. Friend, it's necessary that Jesus lived. Jesus, being fully God, came to earth and was fully man. It's necessary for Jesus to have lived as fully God and fully man so that he could represent us as a man before God and as our Savior before God. What is also necessary for Jesus to love. And by that I mean to, to love God with all of his heart and to remain faithful and obedient to him the whole course of his life. Jesus loved God where we have not. We've sinned against God. But Jesus has fully and always and perfectly loved God. And not only that, friend, it was necessary for Jesus to lay down his life, to bear God's wrath on the cross for our sins. You see, we could not bear the eternal wrath of God for ourselves. But Jesus has done that for us. And it was necessary for Jesus to be raised from the grave so that we can be assured that he is the great Savior who can offer us eternal life because he lives forevermore. It was necessary for Jesus to be raised from the grave to see that God vindicated his life and proved him to be faithful and true to all of his words. Friends, every aspect of Jesus' life was necessary for our salvation. And because he has done that necessary work, you can know that you have a faithful and gracious Savior. So turn from your sins and trust in him today. We've seen Paul's plan. We've heard Paul's proclamation. And in God's grace, there's actually fruit from this proclamation that Paul has. So we see that there are proselytes. And when I use the word proselyte, I simply mean a convert. In other words, what, what happened in response to Paul's proclamation is that men and women come to trust in and love the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And they follow after him. Take a look at Acts chapter 17, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Though as we'll see in the very next verse, in verse 5, that some rejected the message of Jesus in Thessalonica, what we see here in verse 4 is that some believe. That word persuaded, Luke is meaning to, to convince us of this. In fact, that word persuaded does mean that they were convinced. So they were persuaded, they were convinced that what Paul said about Jesus was true. And not only that, the idea persuaded has not only this idea that they are convinced, but they actually acted upon the message that they heard as well. So Paul persuaded them to believe that this is what the scriptures predicted and promised, and that Jesus was this Christ, that he was this Messiah who suffered and died and was raised from the grave. And notice there that they went beyond persuasion. 
You see that word joined there? Again, the idea in the original language is that they were attached to Paul and Silas from that point forward. They were in close association with them. So one brother, Jason, in this text, you, you read this text, you go, poor Jason. I mean, his house gets attacked. It, it's rough for him, right? Uh, he was so closely associated with them that they went after him. Uh, this reminds me of what we read earlier in Acts chapter 2. When thousands were added to the, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you, do you remember what we're told about those thousands? We're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and, and, and to the prayers. So... These saints here in Thessalonica, they were attached to Paul. And Paul actually was attached to them. This is how you know you're doing Christianity right. If you have a love for those who have taught you the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who have taught you the Bible. And that they love you. And that you have this sense that when you're separated, you're torn away. That's the language that Paul actually would use when he wrote to the Thessalonians in his first letter. He would say, I was, I was torn away from you. And it was a painful experience for him. That's because in Christianity, there should be an attachment among believers, a love for one another. And so there's some, some personal application for us here. It's good and right for us to be attached to those who have persuaded us of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Those who have persuaded us that Jesus died for our sins. And this attachment to and eagerness for hearing the word of God is, is such a good sign of true and saving faith that it's taken root in a person's heart. This is what a proselyte, a true believer in Jesus, looks like. One who is persuaded that Christ died for his sins and is hungry for the teaching of the word of God. Are you so persuaded? Are, are, are you pursuing the, the teaching of the word of God? Uh, you should not only be converted to Jesus' kingship, but you should also be connected to Jesus' church, membership in Jesus' church. For a, a local church, as a friend of mine likes to say, is a local embassy of the risen and reigning king. And we go out from this embassy as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the, the, the hunger, this persuasion and joining to uh, Paul and Silas and their message, it happens not only in Thessalonica, but also in Berea as well. So, so take a look at verses 11 and 12 of Acts 17. We read, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So here, notice Luke, he makes kind of an unflattering and direct comparison between the Jews in Thessalonica and the Jews in Berea. The Jews in Thessalonica refused to receive this word with the same kind of eagerness that the Jews in Berea have. And this again, as I said, is what accounts for the nobility of the Jews in Berea. They were more willing to engage with Paul on what the scriptures say about the Christ and his necessity of suffering and dying and rising. They were willing to examine the scriptures and to do so daily. So, so no doubt Paul shared with them at the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom, but they were willing to go back to the synagogue and search the scriptures for themselves to see if what Paul really said was true. Do, do, you, do you recognize that about their examining the scriptures? I mean... They cannot pull a Bible off of their shelf like you can. They can't pull the Bible up on their phone like you can. They had to go down to the place where the scrolls were kept and ask for them to be pulled out and opened for them. It is much easier for you and me to read the Word of God, and which we should give thanks for daily, than it was for these folks in Berea. I mean, think about the efforts and the lengths that they would go through. They didn't have cars they could get in to drive down to their local synagogue. I mean... 
we have all of these privileges today that make our reading of God's word much easier and accessible for us. And here are these, these folks in Berea opening up the scriptures. So let me encourage you to give yourself to, to, to daily Bible reading, that, to examine what is said from this pulpit as well. I mean, maybe that's what you should do with some of your Sunday afternoon. Take your sermon notes home and go back and read the passage and examine if what was preached here is faithful according to God's word. That would be an edifying way to spend your Sunday afternoon. And I want to say a word about that, that eagerness as well. The, the more readily and eagerly you receive the word of God, the more eager you will be to read and receive it again. Right? If you recognize that this is God's word and that he has spoken it, that, that he has made clear the way of salvation in Jesus Christ in it. And that in this word, he has provided you with everything that you need for life and godliness. Then, then I trust you will more eagerly, eagerly receive the word. In fact, I, I think that there is an acceptable form of spiritual gluttony, if you will. Um, the more you eat your Bible and digest it and understand it, the more your appetite for it will grow and expand. And an eagerness for God's word is a God-glorifying form of spiritual gluttony, if I can use that analogy. And think again of that word daily. Let, let us remember the privilege that we have of reading God's word. Let's give ourselves to it daily. Uh, it's been said that you could read through your Bible in a year if you read it for 12 to 15 minutes a day. Uh, let's be Bereans. Let, let's go back to the word of God daily and allow our souls to feast upon God and on his word. That's what a proselyte looks like, one who daily encounters God and His Word. And friend, if you're, you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're, if you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to be a Berean as well. Be noble. Open your heart and search the Scriptures. Recognize what verse 12 says. Do you see that there? It was only because they searched the Scripture that they believed. As the, the text says, many of them therefore believe. Don't, don't come to church ready to reject the Word but ready to hear the reason of why we should receive and believe the word. Uh, read the Bible, friend. Re read a gospel about Jesus Christ. Don't reject Christ when you haven't read an eyewitness account, a, a biography of Jesus, the, the sources that we have about it. We have confidence that the scriptures can withstand the most severe scrutiny. So friend, go ahead, examine the word and read it. Now, they're trustworthy, they're reliable. And feel free to invite another Christian here alongside you to, to read the word with you. I'm sure they'd be delighted to read God's word with you. Well, Paul, he has a plan. He has proclaimed Jesus. He led the Thessalonians and the Bereans to examine the scriptures. God saved sinners. He made them proselytes. But then persecution soon followed. Do you see that in verses 5 to 9 of Acts chapter 17? Just scan those verses. This is the next parallel we find in our text. Persecution. We're told there, you see in verse 5, that the Jews, they were jealous. Uh, they were jealous that God, through the Holy Spirit, was persuading men and women to come to Jesus as Savior and King. And that, honestly, might have had some financial implications for their local synagogue. Whatever the case may be, it's clear that they collected some wicked men to form a mob. Let's just say they didn't send their best after Paul and Silas. Um, these men were morally corrupt. They were what the Old Testament might call worthless fellows. The, the word rabble there, it refers to men who were idle in the marketplace. They were licentious, they were loafers, uh, they were loiterers, and they needed something to do. 
An opportunity to take a job would have been the best option, uh, but the next option, according to them, was to form a, really what is an ill-conceived mob. And notice Luke's characterization carefully. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of a man named Jason. They dragged men through the streets. That's in verse 6. And then they have the gall to claim that men who are actually nowhere to be found, they can't find them, that those men are the ones who are turning the world upside down. Who is really being destructive here? Matthew Henry rightly remarked, See who are the troublers of Israel, not the faithful preachers of the gospel, but the enemies of it. See how the devil carries on his designs. He sets cities in an uproar, sets souls in an uproar, and then fishes in troubled waters. Well, these men, these men who have who've actually set the city in an uproar, these men, they are wicked, and they call evil what God calls good. The preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ is an undiluted good. Paul and Silas were not turning the world upside down. They were turning the world right side up for those who had eyes of faith to see. But pause and ponder. This is often the preposterous protest against preaching Christ. That it's destructive. That that's the nature of Christianity. That it's harmful and hurtful rather than healing. Does Christianity really cause trouble wherever it goes? Does it cause disorder? Does it bring harm? Christianity and the truth of the Bible certainly agitates against sin and unrighteousness. The good news of Jesus Christ certainly disrupts depravity. It certainly sets the soul in an uproar. It certainly reveals that by nature we rebel and act against the laws and decrees of King Jesus. The good news of Jesus certainly comes to show us that our world is turned upside down. And Jesus is going to turn it right side up so that we see the world as he sees it. Jesus is certainly going to reorient us to his righteousness. Christianity certainly does claim that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that all who fail to submit to Jesus are unruly. But no, Christians are not the worst citizens. Christians and the church are no threat to the city officials who act in accordance with God's principles of righteousness. We are not rioters or mobsters or anarchists. Christians are to be the best and most courteous and conscientious citizens. So why was there conflict in Thessalonica? Not only because of the jealousy of the Jews, but also because Paul and Silas were proclaiming the kingship of Jesus. This is precisely the point of conflict with Paul and Silas and the magistrates in Thessalonica. Their response to the preaching of Paul is, what do you mean that there is another king? Right? In their mind, in their Roman world, Caesar is the supreme and sovereign king. And he is to have no rivals. But what Paul and his companions are proclaiming is that actually Jesus is the supreme and sovereign king. And all other kings of the earth fall under his rule and ought to fall down before him in worship. You see, what they, they fail to understand is that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what they need to understand. What they fail to understand is that the source of all governing authority comes from Jesus. It's derived from Jesus. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 tells us, it teaches us, that all authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. All authority. What was it that Jesus said to Pilate? In John chapter 19 verse 11, Jesus said to the man who was about to hand him over for crucifixion, You would have no authority over me at all 
unless it had been given you from above. You see, the source of all governing authority is derivative and derived from Jesus' authority. This is true not only for governing officials. It's also true for pastors. It's true for employers. It's true for fathers and mothers. In every relation and station, we must recognize that if we possess any authority given to us by Jesus, it's an authority that's derived from Jesus and therefore ought to be dependent upon Jesus. We must also recognize that not everyone who claims authority or claims to have authority has actually been authorized to exercise authority. A claim to authority is not the same thing as having been commissioned to exercise authority. Additionally, the scope and sphere for any earthly authority is determined by Jesus. The, The magistrates and the governors of this earth have particular boundaries for their authority. Pastors have particular boundaries for their authority. Our authority, my authority, the elders' authority in this church is bound to this local church. Um, A husband's authority to lovingly lead his wife is bound to his marriage. He he can't lead other men's wives. No, to act outside the sphere of authority as determined by Jesus is to rebel against the king of heaven and earth. Every earthly authority is limited in its bounds by the boundless and limitless authority of Jesus. What is more, the standard by which any particular authority rules is defined by Jesus and his righteousness. The rulers of this earth, uh, though they have been authorized to rule, and though they have been given an arena in which to rule, they may not rule in whatever way they wish. They must rule according to the principles of righteousness as defined by Jesus. This is often a point of conflict for Christians and civil magistrates. And as has often been said, Christians must disobey when the government forbids what God commands, and when it commands what God forbids. Further, Christians may disobey when the government does not rule within its scope or according to Jesus' righteous standard. At the heart of this conflict in Acts, and in a Christian's experience in this world, is precisely the fact that we proclaim Jesus as a supreme and sovereign king. That's why pressure and persecution come to Jesus' church. Because we proclaim the superior and the sovereign kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world feels threatened by such a claim. But the world should feel blessed by such a claim. Because Jesus is heaven's all-gracious king. And this, this pressure, this persecution, is common to the Christian experience. Jesus said that this would happen. So in Luke chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus said this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. You see, what is happening in Acts, it actually only proves Jesus to be the true prophet, priest, and king that the Old Testament predicted. Now, do you know what Jesus said in Luke's gospel immediately after that? Immediately after he told his disciples, you will be persecuted, you will be dragged before governors and kings. This is what Jesus said in the very next verse. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Beloved, pressure and persecution brings opportunities for preaching. It brings opportunities to declare our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't waste your persecution. If you've been waiting for opportunities to evangelize, then this will be one of them, Jesus says. 
persecution also brings opportunity to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. That's what happened with Jason, wasn't it? Jason had his house attacked. He was just allowing him to stay there at his house, giving him hospitality. He had money extorted from him. The government might illegitimately take your money. Jason, too, suffered for Jesus and for Jesus' people. We should probably recognize this. It is possible for us to face persecution because of the faithfulness of other Christians. Jason had simply given Paul and his companions a place to stay, and his good deed would not go unpunished. The same could very well be true of us. If we're simply loving Jesus and loving his people, then it's possible that we will face persecution and pressure for the actions of another Christian. And that's not the time to run away. It's not the time to deny our connection to Jesus or Jesus' people. It's the time and the opportunity to bear witness that Jesus really is king. That his kingdom is not of this world. You can let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the kingdom that you're living for. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. It's a a heavenly and glorious kingdom that will one day come in full. And so we serve Christ our king. And if you can believe it, the persecution that followed Paul from Thessalonica down to Berea. Do you see that there in verse 13? But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Those who will not bow the the knee to the King Jesus will try to have the proclamation of his kingship suppressed. The, The Jews from Thessalonica persevere in their persecution But Paul and Silas, they persevere in their proclamation. That's the final parallel that I want you to see in our text. And it's where we'll conclude. If you think about it, this is really actually where our text began. Acts chapter 17 verse 1 is nothing but Paul and Silas' perseverance and proclamation after being shamefully treated in Philippi. They turn up and they preach the gospel there in Thessalonica. And then, of course, read verse 10. You see, after their treatment in Thessalonica, verse 10, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Sometimes uh, the the right thing to do in the face of persecution is to move to a new field of labor where you can persevere in faithfully proclaiming the gospel. That's what the saints in Thessalonica judged as best for Paul and Silas and his companions. And same really with the saints in Berea. You skip down there to verse 14. See verse 14. Then the brothers, the brothers in Berea, immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Both the saints in Thessalonica and Berea knew that Jesus had to be proclaimed in all the world. That's why they sent Paul uh, on his way. And it's why Paul himself persevered in proclaiming Jesus as king. Paul kept going and going and going. It's why the Genevan reformer said that he had an invincible fortitude of mind. He persevered. And because he persevered, the gospel was poised to turn the people of Athens right side up. Paul's about to walk in among a city that's filled with idols and proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to turn all those idols on their heads and show them they're worthless and nothing. He's going to call the people of Athens to turn from serving those idols to turn and serve the one true and living God. And just as God did a miracle and saved sinners in Philippi 
and Thessalonica, and then in Berea. So he's going to do a miracle again and save sinners in Athens. The lost need to be found. The rebels need to be rescued from ruin. That's why we need to persevere in our proclamation of Jesus. As one brother in our congregation told me, salvation belongs to the Lord, and perseverance and proclamation belongs to us. We must be more concerned about the praise and pleasure of God than the praise and pleasure of men. We want God to be commended more than we want our own comfort. We can't let the fear of pressure or persecution or rejection slow us down. We must be committed to making God's grace known and risk rejection. Because among the mass of people who might reject Jesus, there might be some who still receive him as king. It was Paul's perseverance and proclamation that by God's grace led the proselytes and disciples of Jesus. Beloved, let us recognize that we, we are living evidence that amidst earth's rejection of Jesus, the earth is still receiving our king. Let us persevere in the joy of proclaiming peace on earth, good will to men from heaven's all gracious king. Let us persevere in issuing the invitation, come to Bethlehem and see. Him whose birth the angels sing, come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Issue the invitation, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn king. Hold him out and invite people to hold on to him in faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your word that reminds us that Jesus is heaven's all-gracious king, the sovereign ruler of all. Father, we give you thanks that Jesus suffered and died and rose from the grave for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. We give you thanks for the challenge of Paul's perseverance in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and King. And we pray and ask for that same grace. Oh, Father, would you, would you make us faithful in this perseverance, in this proclamation until the end. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.